bow in prayer as we look into the Word. Lord, at moments like this, we long to hear your Word come alive to us and to know you're speaking into our lives. We pray that you give us ears to hear. We pray that you would help us to always keep our focus on Christ, not to hear your word as laying a burden on us and therefore obligating us with responsibilities that make us into merely just doing duties. But Lord, we pray that your word might point us to Christ, might point us to yourself, and might help us find hope in you and in your resources as we understand our limitations, our weaknesses, and our needs. And so, Father, speak, we pray, through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, we're going to continue reading in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. It's in page 579 in your pew Bible. We're looking at the book of Nehemiah, uh, which comes, as I've said in previous weeks, as the last of a record of biblical history in the Old Testament. It really should be the one recording the last events. It is the one recording the last events that occurred in sequential order, even though it's not the last in terms of its order in your Bible. So if you're on that page, 579, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 1. <clears throat> we're going to again notice what happened here with Nehemiah. He, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, the capital of Persia, by the way, that Hanani, one of my brothers, a fellow Jew, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you did command your Moses, to your servant Moses. Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remotest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are your servants and your people whom you did redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Two weeks ago, we considered the question 
How do you respond to bad news? And we've acknowledged that Christians are not immune from such bad news. For example, Psalm 34 we read, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It has been that way and continues that way throughout all of biblical history. It's been true that Nehemiah, the person who assisted the king of Persia, had a very exclusive position of trust within the higher echelon of important people around the king. That here he is as a Jew, a person who probably at one time did live in Jerusalem. Now he's been relocated to this particular kingdom far, far away. And here he serves as the cupbearer. He tastes the wine before the king drinks it to make sure the king does not get poisoned. And there he is serving the king, a Gentile king, and he receives this bad news that comes from his hometown there in Jerusalem regarding the condition of the city and the people within it. And he's deeply moved by it. It's not just something he reads and then he continues on with his daily duties. Notice he says in verse 4, It came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. His strength dissipated. His eyes filled with tears. And his heart was gripped in sorrow. And two weeks ago, in my sermon, I focused on the fact that when he got this bad news, hearing about the city where God had placed his name, knowing that it was still broken down, knowing that it was still in ruins, I failed to consider at that time anything other than the fact that he prayed. And that was an important theme to develop, that he sought God when he heard bad news. But I didn't consider another important aspect of his response in addition to prayer, and I'd like us to think about that this morning. He was so upset by the bad news that he earnestly sought God's intervention in a manner that to some of us may seem rather odd or something that we're certainly not familiar with. He fasted. Look at verse 4. He was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What we understand here is that he's crying out to God with such a deep level of concern that he went without food for a period of time as he lifts his heart and his concerns to God in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not too many people you talk to in everyday conversation that talk about fasting. It's just something that people don't talk much about, and I would imagine not too many people admit to ever fasting. Some of us are required to fast when we take blood tests for various medical reasons, and so you have to stop eating all foods uh, after midnight, and then you go and have your blood drawn the next day without any food uh, consumed prior to that particular test. Others may, may have grown up in uh, various forms of um, different religious observances. Some of us may have had required days of fasting on Good Friday or on uh, Ash Wednesday, or perhaps some of us have a background in which we were a part of Ramadan and we were encouraged to fast during the daylight hours. But we were just told to do that. We were instructed to do that. That's just what you do. But since fasting is rarely mentioned or discussed in today's world, I'm wondering if some of us might 
assume that it has little value, really, for Christians today. Did you know that in looking through the issue of fasting, as I looked through the number of times it is found in Scripture, it's found 77 times in the Bible. It's found not only as something that was practiced in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but it's also found in the New Testament, in the New Covenant period of time. Some of us may be wondering, well, uh, are Christians supposed to fast now in this particular covenant era? now that Jesus has fulfilled so many of the Old Testament feasts. But I want us to look clearly and understand this uh, teaching of Jesus on this. Look at Matthew chapter 6, which we had Pat read earlier for us, page 1147. Jesus' comments here, I don't think actually we got to these verses, is verses 16 and 17. Jesus makes it clear that he assumes that his followers will indeed fast. Verse 16, Matthew 6, Whenever you fast, not if you ever fast, but whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. And then skip over, but you, when you fast, verse 17, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, he's saying, don't draw attention to the fact that you're fasting, but go ahead and fast, is what he's saying. To add to that evidence of New Testament Christians fasting, I would also encourage you to notice in Acts chapter 13, we get a a glimpse into the life of early believers there in the church there in Antioch as they're worshiping before the Lord. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, we read. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. They list them by name, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So not only did Jesus indicate that it was expected that people would fast, but the early church uh, believers, they did fast. And then in Matthew 9, if you'll just turn back one more time to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, very interesting comment Jesus makes regarding his followers and whether it's appropriate for them to fast. He had been asked by several of the disciples of John, John the Baptist, uh, Matthew 9, 14, He was asked, well, why don't you fast? Your followers don't fast like the followers of John the Baptist or the Pharisees. What's with your followers? Why don't they fasting? And his comment is very significant. Verse 15, 915. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What he says here is he uses an analogy of a church wedding feast, and he talks about the fact that when the bridegroom's there, this is a time to rejoice, this is a time to celebrate, it's a time to enter into the, the, the joys of having him with us. But then he says when the, when the day comes when the bridegroom's gone, then you can consider more heavy matters of concern and get back to things that we have to deal with as a part of the fact that he's not with us. And so 
we would understand that Jesus is indicating that he's, since he's no longer with us, we would expect this to be a time in which we're longing for his kingdom to fully come, for him to return back to us, and therefore this is a time in which it's appropriate at times for Christians to fast. Now I want to explore this idea of fasting by answering a couple of questions, as you'll note in your notes here today, just two questions. First is this, what is fasting? What do we mean by that? And being clear on what we understand that to signify. And then, what does fasting signify or portray? What is the meaning or the purpose of it? And before I go any further, I want to be very clear. My purpose this morning is not to make all of us feel guilty about enjoying food. I want you not to feel guilty about the fact that you may not fast or you may choose not to add fasting to your times of prayer. This is not designed to keep guilt on anybody. Please don't hear me saying that at all. My goal here this morning is to explore different aspects of this spiritual discipline and to try to understand how fasting may actually be something that would help us It might be useful to us as a means of grace when coupled with prayer for our good and for the glory of God. So that's really the only reason we're looking into this as something that actually can be a tool to helping us during times of prayer. So to answer the first question then, what is fasting? I'll have a quote here from a book by Donald Whitney entitled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he says this, He defines fasting as a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual reasons. A Christian's voluntary abstinence. So when you read about Nehemiah, we read about him as a person who began to to seek God. He began to fast. It's important to notice that no one coerced him into doing this fast. No one said of him, all right, stop it, you can't have any more food for a period of time, and mandated that he forego food for that period of time. But no, he chose to do so. And he fasted as he prayed because this was his way of conveying how earnestly he was longing for God to intervene. This is one way that he elected to give up all the comforts and convenience of food out of his deep need of concern for his fellow Jews and for the city of Jerusalem, and for the cause of God, and the concerns of what God he knew was longing to do back in his homeland. So let's be clear. The fasting I am referring to today is not for the purpose of losing weight. So take a deep breath and relax. I'm not talking about your weight today. Some of us are thinking guiltily about that, And I'm not talking about fasting for the purpose of slimming your waistline to make you look better or to make you so you can fit into your clothes better or whatever. I'm not talking about that. Fasting, as we're talking about here this morning, is not about improving your health. So we're not talking about drinking green stuff that you've put in your blender and that's all you're going to drink for the next four days and cleanse your body. I'm not talking about that kind of fasting. That's a whole other subject. I'm not getting into all that. What we're talking about this morning is to notice that Nehemiah, when he began to fast and pray, he's not thinking about his appearance. He's not saying, I want to I have a, a better youthful you know, look in my face. He's not worried about that. And may I also suggest to you that when we're talking about fasting, we're not looking at fasting as a means by which 
we can bargain with God. There's a danger that when we think, well, if I give up food for a period of time and I'm praying about a certain matter, then I'm going to sort of say, if I'm making this sacrifice, then God, I think you owe me. You're obligated to do something here in light of what I've done. No, no, no. We're not talking about that at all either. That's not what Nehemiah had in mind, and that's not what true biblical fasting is about. Because some people assume that if we do something self-sacrificial, that's going to gain us greater access to God. We have a better inside track with God. God's going to be more likely to give us what it is we really want. I want to warn us against that entire way of thinking. To think that somehow if I give up something of value, that God is going to give me more what I deserve. Ooh, that's not what we're talking about at fasting at all. Matter of fact, the gospel says the exact opposite, right? The gospel says, Titus 3, 5, the gospel gives us the good news that our access to God, the fact that we can even pray to a God who is holy and who, for me to approach God otherwise, would get me into all kinds of serious problems and hardship and, and, uh, and suffering and justice that I would have to face. But I have access to God that's not based on my good deeds. It's not based on what I've done or what I've not done. It's based on what Jesus has done. It's based on Jesus' sinless, perfect life he's lived. It's based on Jesus' death on my behalf, on that cross, bearing my sins. It's based on his resurrection from the dead. That is the good news of the gospel. So fasting is not an attempt to try to make myself better before God. Access to God is provided by Jesus, period. So let's keep that in our minds here clearly as we move forward in this passage of Scripture. I think that Nehemiah, as he's fasting, I think he did so as an expression of his hunger for God. He is very desirous of God at this moment in his life. And when I'm thinking about fasting, please do not think that I'm telling everyone here today that you must fast every time you hear bad news. I'm not saying to you us that some of us should fast. Uh, some of us should not fast when it comes to the idea of abstaining from food. Some of us have health and physical concerns that would limit us from being able to forego food for an extended period of time. Therefore, there are legitimate medical reasons that you need to be very careful not to do fasting, as we talked about it here. You need to consult with your doctor first before you start voluntarily just giving up food for a period of time. And please don't hear me say that people who enjoy food are less committed to God because they love to have tasty, delicious, well-prepared food and love to enjoy it on a regular basis, as if to think now people that do that are less spiritual than the people who like to be around fasting all the time. That's not a proper understanding as well. How do you know that? Well, look at the verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, God gave us all kinds of food to enjoy. Food is a proper and appropriate thing. And guess what? If you don't eat, you're not going to live. So we're not talking about giving up food uh, because we know that God has given us food for our blessing, for our enjoyment. He desires for us to enjoy it. It's good for us. And so hear me out on that, okay? Everybody okay with that? All right, so you can have lunch today. Not feel guilty, all right? So there you go. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the loudest amen I've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> Scared me. All right. So fasting 
I want to also add another thought on this general theme of fasting. I'd like to suggest to us that not just thinking about fasting and food, but to think of the word fasting as maybe not just limited in that narrow sense. I think that's what Nehemiah was doing. But I think the idea of fasting can also apply in a number of ways in different aspects of expressing our hunger for God. For example, some people can think of fasting. If you take something that you love, it's a willingness to say, I'm going to forgo that for a period of time because I am so longing to see God help me in some area that I'm concerned about. So, for example, if you love music, you might give up a concert. I'm not going to hopefully give up the Getty concert, but you could, you could give up a concert or something that you would normally do and enjoy as a way of spending time with God instead. So, for example, you might want to give up time on Facebook or say, I'm going to go without Snapchat for a while or other, other things that preoccupy, video games or something that you find to be something that's desirable, enjoyable. It's not inappropriate, nothing wrong with it but I'm just going to give it up for a period of time because I've got something that's weighing on my heart and mind. I've got to seek God on this matter, and therefore I'm going to give up these other things that become much less important to me during this season. It's like the idea of one passion that we have among many passions in life. One passion is at this point going to drive out another passion for my life for a period of time. You see, that, that, that I think is a helpful way of thinking about what fasting really is about. And Jesus warns us about people who fast for all the wrong reasons. When you read Matthew 6, he warns that the people are fasting. Why? Because they were trying to, to win the sense of respect from other people. Like, whoa, this guy's fasting again? Look at that. Look at his face. You could tell he's fasting. Look at all the outward evidences of his fast. And so he's like, Jesus is saying, wait a minute. That should not be the motive of why you're fasting. Nehemiah was not trying to impress other people. He was not trying to draw attention to himself with his fasting. His passion for God took over other legitimate desires that he had in his life. Look at verse 4 again of, of Nehemiah 1. It says that, came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying, watch this, before the God of heaven. That was his real audience. That was his point of reference. That was the one he was concerned would understand what he's expressing here in his fasting. It was aimed toward God. Here's an example I heard as I had someone describe their helpful insight into this matter of fasting. Suppose you had planned for a period of time, you've been planning, let's say for a couple of years, a vacation that you knew was going to be quite special, quite elaborate and out of the ordinary. And this vacation, you've been researching it, uh, you have saved your money for it, it's a little more expensive, <clears throat> and you've secured reservations, it's all been laid out. And the day in which you're to catch the plane to leave this area and to go on your trip, and begin this wonderful vacation, on that day, on that morning, let's say your four-year-old child collapses in his bedroom and is unresponsive. Now, are you passionate about this vacation? Yes, it's been two years of planning. Are you passionate about your child? Absolutely. 
At that moment, all of your concerns, all of your focus goes toward what? Your vacation? No, of this child. And so you stop everything you're doing. You don't think about anything else for a moment, and you focus on making sure that your son receives the medical attention that he may need. You see, the point here is that when Nehemiah heard the tragic news of these broken down walls, when he hears the news about people living in despair, living in shame, of, of how this brings dishonor to the name of God, he, his passion for, his, for consuming his next meal began to fade into the background. All of a sudden, that didn't seem concerning to him. That wasn't something that he was, and I'm sure he ate some good food. If you live with a king and you live on that level, I'm sure he had a very comfortable life and had some really good cuisine. I'm wondering if you could ever relate to that. Have you ever had a situation in your life in which life is going on and you're concerned about a number of things and then all of a sudden one issue becomes super important, big-time concern that begins to have other things begin to fade into the background? some point in your heart was captured by this irrepressible longing for God and for His intervention in your life. Maybe it's been the illness of someone you loved and you began to realize this is a serious matter. I, am gonna, this is, I just can't go on and live life like I once was. I'm now sobered with the thought that this is a matter that I've got to find help from God. And the motive here, of course, is not to gain God's approval. It's not to gain the approval of other people around you. But there's this sense in which you are expressing your love and your heartfelt, deep longing for God. And it, and it, and it comes in such a way that you say, this priority of, of how I want to express my desire for God, this, is, this other area of my life is going to fade in comparison to the joy that I find in being able to open my heart in earnest hunger for God. He would meet me where I am right here with this particular need. I feel as though this time in my life is a time that fits this kind of description. It's not just a time just to be praying, although that's a good thing, as we talked about two weeks ago, but I'm suggesting it's appropriate to add the element of fasting as God may lead you in the generalized way in which we've tried to lay it out here. That leads me to my second point of reflection on this passage of Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 1. What does fasting signify? There are a number of ways we could answer this. This could be a whole nother long uh, study for us, but I've just tried to summarize some general categories for us. Um, there are a number of reasons in the Scriptures that people fasted. At times, individuals have chosen to abstain from food, as we've talked about that kind of fasting, for the purpose of humbling themselves before God as a way of expressing before God the fact that they are depending on Him alone, that we're drawing from Him all of our strength. Everything I need is coming from You, God. I need You, and I can't resolve this on my own. It's a way of humbly, humbling oneself before God. This is Psalm 35. David says, I humbled my soul with fasting. And by the way, if you fast long enough, you will sense anew and afresh how weak you are. You just don't have the, the, the step, you know, the kick in your step. You just don't have the strength, the stamina, the kind of... Now, sometimes after a day or two or three, they say, they say, I'm not an expert in this. Some people say after day two, or what, you, you will begin to have a different kind of, of uh, energy level 
as your body adjusts to what's going on. But the fact is, it reminds you of, again, a way of expressing how humble you are uh, looking to God. <clears throat> Others have fasted for a period of time in order to express their sorrow. Sorrow over their sin. Sorrow over their, their uh, ways in which they have offended God. And they have now expressed in their, in their uh, fasting and in their prayers a desire to repent, a desire to, to return to God and say, Lord, this is not just something I'm just saying. I'm, I'm showing it with my... Food no longer is as important to me as, as you understanding the sincerity and the earnestness of my soul during this period of my life. There are numerous examples of that in Scripture. And I've listed those in your notes, I believe. Jonah has the time in which he preaches to the population of Nineveh. And, and much to his chagrin, when he preaches the, the good news of repentance to them and finding uh, uh, escaping from God's wrath, they do. And so they declare they want to fast from the greatest of them to the least. And then you read in Nehemiah later in this own book, Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. There's a sense in which they come with great sorrow and grieving over the steps that have led to where they are as a people. Daniel chapter 9. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. So you sense that when someone is, is grieving and when they have a sense of heaviness and mourning over their, how the way they've offended God, fasting is a way to sometimes express that appropriately to God in prayer. <clears throat> But what I want to talk about this morning, again, as I've already been mentioning to you, is this general sense of fasting when coupled with prayer that conveys a sense of urgency to our requests from God. Urgency. It sharpens the edge of our intercessions. And so that's why I have the quote in your notes by Arthur Willis, who I think had some helpful ways of of expressing that. He says, fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and importance into our praying and to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The person who prays with fasting is giving heaven notice that he or she is truly in earnest. In other words, I'm not playing games here. This is not something just a casual concern. <clears throat> I'm not talking about a five-cent issue here. I'm talking about something that's worth 50 grand. I'm talking about something worth five million dollars to me. This is a huge issue that weighs heavily upon me, and I'm earnestly crying out to you, O oh God. I assure you, when I give up food and I'm fasting, it's important. Right? Think about it. Some of us find so much delight and so much pleasure, I do myself, in the familiar foods that we've come to like and appreciate, <clears throat> that to give that up is a way of us expressing the fact that this is a serious matter. It really is. It's an urgent matter. And so when we add fasting to our prayers for a season of time, we're expressing that we are longing for God more than I'm longing for that food, for that momentary pleasure that I get even from this food. It no longer means that much to me for this time. I'm consciously choosing to convey to God <clears throat> the depth of our longing for His help 
and for his intervention. As I've been researching this, I came across a helpful comment from John Piper. He, he put it this way. <clears throat> he says that fasting <clears throat> functions like an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. In other words, it conveys that we are urgently seeking God and that we are longing for Him to unveil His power. We're longing for Him to advance His agenda, which we acknowledge that we cannot do that. So we're looking for God to do what only God can do. And we're also focusing totally on God. We're trying to seek His guidance and His help. And so I find that when I fast, and by the way, I don't fast that often, so I'm acknowledging that to you. Although I recently did fast, and I found it quite helpful for my soul. <clears throat> my hunger pangs doesn't take very long, and they kick in pretty fast. I mean, I'm usually, my stomach growls at 11 o'clock before lunch, right? So, so if you go beyond lunch, uh, it, clearly the, 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 the system inside is saying, okay, uh, it's time for some fuel for the furnace. But when I'm deeply burdened about a situation, when I'm deeply burdened about a problem or a crisis that I'm facing, every hunger pain serves as a prompt calling me to pray. So that when my stomach is growling, it's as if I'm saying, okay, stomach, you're crying out for food. How much more am I crying out to you, O oh God? I need to keep crying. I need to keep seeking you. I need to keep making this matter of prayer because, God, I desperately need you. Fasting forces me to admit my weaknesses. It, it, it helps me to focus on God, helps me to lift my thoughts and my attention to God, realizing that as my stomach's growling, so my heart is, is yearning, is hungry for you, O oh God. It helps to intensify our prayers. It gets us to focus our spiritual attention on God that harmonizes with a heart that is really seeking after God. Well, where are we going with this? Well, let me just suggest this. I would like to suggest, not just suggest, I'd like to call our church to fast and pray to the God of heaven. We are, as a church, in a period of a crisis period, in a sense, we have great needs now. As we talked earlier, there's a time of brokenness among us as a, shirt, as a church, as a flock. And so it's a time to seek God for His provision and for His leading. It's a time in many ways to begin to think, Lord, how would you like the next chapter to look like in the life of our church? Help us to see and, and capture a vision of what that may look like. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I'm not going to pretend to know how we're going to make it through the next three months or three years. But it's an opportunity to seek God and say, God, show us a fresh vision. Give us your, your provision. Help you, you begin to lead us, Lord. Help us to coalesce along a new way of responding to our challenges that we face at this time. It's the time to humble ourselves and intensify our prayers. And so I'd like to invite you to join with me in seeking God with fasting and prayer. Fasting as you feel led to do fasting. The way you fast may be entirely different than how I fast. That's okay. I'm not going to think that I'm better than you, and certainly you're no better than I am in whatever way you choose to do. It's not a matter of competition. It's a matter of saying it's all for the Lord as unto the Lord God of heaven. So again, please do not hear me saying I'm trying to put a guilt trip on you. 
I'm not asking you to go around replacing your passion for food or media or entertainment or shopping or whatever and passionately seek God in prayer just so that you can feel like you're more qualified or you're better viewed by God because you've done those things. No, that's not it at all. I'm asking you to consider skipping one meal or giving up something that might be something you normally would look forward to and find to be something that is a delightful part of your day to say, no, Lord, you are more delightful to me. My heart is yearning for you, and I want to express that in a very tangible way for you as a means of helping me and getting my heart in the right direction to earnestly seek God, not to just be ho-hum about things around me, but to be engaged. And some of you may go for 24 hours. This might be a brand new thing in your life to say, I'm actually going to go for a period of time and skip a number of meals as I just drink lots of water and begin to say, God, I'm crying out to you. There might be some other area of your life in addition to the crisis we face here. You might want to make that part of the focus of your seeking God. As a matter of fact, I'd like to suggest that as we pray for our church, maybe you want to intercede for an unbeliever. For those around us that perhaps we felt unconcerned about them for quite a while, and now this is an opportunity where God begins to lay that person on your heart, and you begin to fast and pray for the unbelievers you know around you, that God would do a work in their hearts and lives, and, heart, and doing a work in your own heart and life. I want us to be very open to this. Please don't see this as some sort of regulated, uh, you know, legalistic, uh, I'm trying to you know, impose this on everyone. No, I'm just calling us to say, is this not an opportunity for us to express to God how, lo- how much we long for Him to show Himself great and mighty in our weakness and in our need? And I find it to be something that indeed may help us grow as we see God working in our own hearts, leading us into deeper, more passionate prayer and earnestness before Him, humbling ourselves before Him. Can that be a bad thing as we humble ourselves before God and seek His face? And so I'd like to suggest a final uh, point here, and that is I'll be speaking with Fred Perez, one of our, our prayer coordinator in our church, and I'd like to suggest that the Wednesday before our semi-annual meeting, I'd like to call that as a day of fasting and prayer for our church family. Maybe Wednesday doesn't work for you. That's okay. If you can't do it, that's fine. Nobody's going to ask you, are you doing it or are you not doing it? I'm just going to suggest that on October the 22nd, a Wednesday, that you consider focusing, if you are going to fast, that that might be a day to do so, and that 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 evening we'll call our church family together, we'll have a special time of just prayer, seeking God together. Not talking about who's doing what, and who's fasting, and how long, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to seek God together in prayer. And if God leads you to fast, great. If He doesn't, that's between you and God. But I say these things because I'm convinced Nehemiah is helping us realize we all need the Lord. And the more we're aware of our needs, the more we're aware of brokenness, the more we're aware of things are not right as God would have them be, the more we need to see his intervention. And therefore, it's appropriate to seek him in prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, I want to just thank you that we have been, as a people, in this land, we have had more than enough to eat, and food has been plenteous. And Lord, we thank you for that. That's a huge blessing, and we, are, we have derived much 
enjoyment from eating food. Lord, we thank you that that continues to be a blessing. And so, Lord, we thank you that we don't have to give up food entirely. That's not what you're calling us to do. But, Lord, I just pray that as we reflect on what it is that we can glean and understand about what it means to really hunger for you, I pray that you would show us ways in which we can appropriately express a work of your Spirit in our hearts that draws us into deeper, more earnest longings for you. Not to be pious before somebody else, not to impress other people, Lord, but as a way in which our heart is just yearning and longing for you, crying out to you, seeking your face, taking you at your word, pleading with you, and interceding, Lord, for the challenges we face as a church, as an individual. Some of us, Lord, are facing sin patterns in our lives. We can't, can't seem to ever break these sin patterns. It just seems to always be knocking us down. Lord, maybe, maybe a time of fasting and prayer regarding that concern of our life might be what you're laying upon our hearts today, Lord. Helping us realize we need to be earnestly seeking your help and your intervention in our weaknesses. So, Lord, I pray by faith that you would show yourself to be mighty among us. As we humble ourselves, may we see you in all the greatness of who you are. May we have a fresh appreciation of the gospel in knowing what Jesus has done for us and knowing that we have access to your presence because of Jesus. And we're not trying to impress you or anyone else. Lord, we do so because our hearts love you and we yearn for you more and more in this dry and in this desperate land we live in. We pray these things, Father, that you might be glorified and that you might so work in us that we might see you working together for good in this endeavor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.